Hello, I'm Susan Karmanian, the Associate Dean for International and Comparative Legal Studies and the Burnett Family Professorial Lecturer in International Law and Comparative Policy at the George Washington University Law School. Today's lecture is going to focus on the right to property under international law. Before diving into the details, I would like to address two questions that may come to mind. The first question is, why the right to property? The second question is, why is this right being examined under international law versus the law of a single state, or what is referred to as municipal law? Let's focus first on the right to property. When one thinks of rights, particularly those under international law, one immediately may think of political and civil rights, such as those enshrined in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Some of these rights, such as the right to life, the right to a fair trial, and the right to freedom of association and expression, tend to dominate the discussion of rights. The theoretical foundation for this focus is well established. In his book, Development is Freedom, Amartya Sen, the Nobel Laureate, made the case that, and I quote, the objective of development relates to the value of the actual freedoms enjoyed by the people involved. In other words, freedom is an end in itself. He notes further that freedom is key to the means, is a key means to development. Similarly, Professor Ernst Ulrich Petersmann has rightfully noted the foundation of human rights rests with human dignity, founded on Kant's notion of human beings being treated as ends in themselves, as opposed um, to means to an end. Yet, property is key to the human development, and it's also key to the complete realization of the human potential. Aristotle, in his politics, recognized the importance of property to the ordering of society. I quote, when everyone has a distinct interest, men will not complain of one another, and they will make more progress, because everyone will be attending to his own business." End quote. The historian Richard Pipes, in his book, The Russian Revolution, observed that, quote, private property is arguably the single most important institution of social and political integration. Ownership of property creates a commitment to the political and legal order since the latter guarantees property rights." End quote. So property is important in terms of hu human development and satisfaction, but also in terms of the effective ordering of a society. The second question, why international law? Many municipal legal systems have robust, robust property regimes. The United States Constitution recognizes in the Fifth Amendment that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. 
The 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution prohibits the state from denying a person of property without due process of law. The U.S. Constitution goes beyond real property by recognizing in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution that the United States Congress has the power to protect inventors by giving them, quote, the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries, end quote. With this power, the United States Congress has passed laws protecting intellectual property rights, such as patents, trademarks, and copyrights. Constitutions of other states recognize the right to property. Article 35 of the Constitution of the Russian Federation recognizes the right to property and requires compensation for state taking. Section 17 of the Constitution of Argentina provides, quote, property may not be violated and no inhabitant of the nation can be deprived of it except by virtue of a sentence based on law. Expropriation for reasons of public interest must be authorized by law and previously compensated. That provision further recognizes, like the U.S. Constitution, that, quote, every author or inventor is the exclusive owner of his work, invention, or discovery for the term granted by law, end quote. Other legal systems may recognize the, the right to property, but impose various other limits. Article 56.1 of the Constitution of Bolivia, for example, recognizes the right of everyone to property so long as it serves a social function. Further, under subpart two, the Constitution guarantees private property so long as, quote, the use made of it is not harmful to the collective interest, end quote. Now, each state may decide how to allocate resources within its jurisdiction. A state could elect not to have private property, assuming that is consistent with any treaty obligations or perhaps with customary principles. A state could control who owns property, such as prohibiting ownership of certain types of property or prohibiting a class of people, such as foreigners, from owning or developing certain natural resources. Again, such a regime must comply with all other laws of the state, including any international obligations. If a state were to allow private property, the state could have its own rules regarding expropriation. Yet since World War II, we've seen the emergence of international legal principles that have reshaped the landscape. With the signing of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the entry into force of associated human rights treaties and investment treaties, the state-centric focus has changed. The conversation has shifted to rights with a capital R, particularly when a remedy is available to the aggrieved right holder. Treaties largely establish and define the right to property. Customary international law principles may come into play as well. In particular, a body of customary international law related to the right to property of aliens has shaped foreign investment law, along with the many international investment agreements. 
principles such as a customary international law minimum standard of treatment and prohibition of expropriation absent due process and compensation are reflected in investment treaties, yet derive largely from customary principles relating to the treatment of aliens. Within this body of customary law are what can also be considered political rights, such as the alien's right to be free from denial of justice. Hence, it's impossible to understand the topic of the right to property solely as an economic one. Now, for a detailed history of these developments, I would encourage you to read Professor John Sprankling's book, The International Law of Property. It came out in 2014, published by Oxford University Press. If you want to go back and focus on some of the customary principles, the work of professors Louis Bisson and Richard Baxter on the international responsibility of states for injuries to aliens, written in the early 1960s, sheds important light. Before we get into the substance of the right to property under international law, I think it's important to note that the topic conjures up a number of issues. What is property? Is it merely a physical asset, such as a tract of land, or a building, or this desk? Is it a non-physical asset, such as a patent, a contract right, an arbitration award, a share in a company, an interest in a judgment? What is the meaning of the right? Does it mean that the individual right could encroach on non-property rights of other individuals, such as the right to free speech? Surely, a state may need property for the public interests, so when this happens, what happens to the right holder? Or what about the ability of a state to perform a basic regulatory function, such as to tax or to impose an environmental standard? What does this mean? for the right to property under international law? Are there unique aspects of the right to property when peoples collectively, such as an indigenous community, assert the right? In this latter context, the property may be an economic value, but it has important cultural aspects. Similar issues arise in the context of religious artifacts. Are there special rules for property in times of war? What about the rights of refugees to their property? And in the context of mass atrocities, what mechanisms exist for compensating victims for the taking of their property? In addition, treaties make reference to various rights that are not styled as property, yet implicate access to resources. Take a look at Articles 1 and 2 of the International Covenant on Civil Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic and Social Rights. These articles recognize, and I quote, that all peoples have the right of self-determination and by virtue of the right, they can freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development, end quote. 
they may, quote again, for their own ends freely dispose of their natural wealth and resources without prejudice to any obligations arising out of international economic cooperation based upon principle of mutual benefit and international law. In no case may a people be deprived of its own means of subsistence. These provisions talk about resources. They talk about peoples. They talk about development. They link development to economic growth. Now, all of these issues and many more are implicated when looking at the right to property. Due to time limits, it's impossible to address all of them in this lecture. But I would like to look at the role of international human rights treaties and also look at, the look at property in the context of international investment agreements. So let's go first to international human rights treaties. Before we get into the treaties, let's focus on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Article 71 of the Declaration states, and I quote, everyone has the right to own property alone as well in association with others, end quote. The Declaration's Article 17.2 provides that, and I quote, no one shall be arbitrarily deprived of his property, end quote. The Declaration, while not a treaty, helped establish the basis for the right to property that would later appear in major regional human rights treaties. The Convention for Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, or what I would refer to as the European Convention, the American Convention on Human Rights, the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, and the Arab Charter on Human Rights. These treaties recognize the right to property, but do so in different ways. Let's focus on one of the treaties, the European Convention, which entered into force in 1953. The treaty itself did not include the right to property at the outset. Article 1, Protocol 1 of the European Convention, which came into a force later, provided that quote, every natural or legal person is entitled to the peaceful enjoyment of his possessions. No one shall be deprived of his possession except in the public interest and subject to the conditions provided for by law and by the general principles of international law, end quote. This entitlement, however, could not, as the convention provided, in any way, quote, impair the right of a state to enforce such laws as it deems necessary to control the use of the property in accordance with the general interest or to secure the payment of taxes or other contributions or penalties, end quote. The European Court of Human Rights has been asked to apply and interpret Article I, Protocol I in numerous instances. Its jurisprudence has shed light on the right to property under international law. First, included, the, the, the right to property was included in a protocol and not as part of the original European Convention. Why? Well, at the time the Convention was being negotiated, 
The right to property was perceived by some of the European states to constrain the state and the ability of that state to manage industry for policy and social reasons. Second, it's interesting that the European Convention uses the term possessions, not property. Nevertheless, that term has been construed to mean property in a very broad sense. In their treatise on the European Convention, Professor David Harris and the former court, court deputy registrar, Michael O'Boyle, along with many colleagues, have documented the wide definition given to possession. Possession has been interpreted to mean immovable and movable property, contractual rights, monies due under court judgments, or even due to an arbitration award and state benefits. Third, and a unique aspect of the European Convention is that it applies to natural and juridical persons. Hence, corporations have the right to property under the European Convention. The European Court has heard numerous courts filed by corporate has heard numerous cases filed by corporations regarding the deprivation of the right to property. Fourth, the right has been construed to consist of three rules, a peaceful enjoyment of property or possessions, deprivation only being allowed if it's in the public interest and subject to legal constraints, and third, the states may regulate in accordance with the general interest. If there is a finding of deprivation, it must serve a legitimate objective and be proportionate. The European Court of Human Rights in the Sporong and Lombroth versus Sweden case in 1982 held that a fair balance must be struck, quote, between the demands of the general interest of the community and the requirements of the protection of the individual's fundamental rights. The search for this balance is inherent in the whole of the Convention and is also reflected in the structure of Article I." End quote. Obviously, when community rights or collective rights are up against individual property rights, balance is key. Included in this mix are both substance and procedural matters. The nature of the infringement, such as is it a direct taking or a regulatory taking, and the European Court's application of the margin of appreciation in examining the conduct of the state. Let's look at another treaty, the American Convention on Human Rights. Article 21 recognizes everyone's right to the use and enjoyment of his property. Yet it acknowledges that, quote, the law may subordinate such use and enjoyment to the interests of society. Another example of the balance, the individual right to property being subjected to the interest of society. The treaty also provides that any taking of property must be done, quote, for reasons of public utility or social interest, end quote, upon payment of just compensation and consistent with law. Again, this is consistent when you look at the language of the U.S. Constitution 
you look at some of the language we just referred to in the European Convention. The notion there can be a taking under certain circumstances, yet there must be protections in place. The seminal case on the right to property under Article 21 of the American Convention is the Evesher Bronstein versus Peru case, a judgment issued in 2001 by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. In this case, Peru had taken away the citizenship of Evesher after his media company had been investigated for corruption um, in, in the Peruvian government. A Peruvian court suspended Evesher's ability to exercise his majority shareholder rights, divested him of leadership positions in the company, because under Peruvian law, only a Peruvian national can own shares in a telecommunications company. It also ordered a board meeting to implement the court's measures. The Inter-American Court of Human Rights held that the, the suspension, quote, obstructed Mr. Eifscher's use and enjoyment of, end quote, the rights in his shares, and thus deprived him of property. In this case, as the court noted, Peru had not presented evidence or arguments that the suspension was based on public utility or social interests. The evidence, according to the Inter-American Court, was that the state deprived Eifscher of his property interest and did so without affording him due process and compensation. The Eifscher Bronstein case defined property in a broad sense. In this case, shares in a company were critical. In addition to consisting of material objects, property includes, quote, any right that may form part of a person's patrimony, end quote, including movables and immovables and any intangible object with value. Perhaps one of the most important developments post-Eifscher is how that case paved the way for claims under Article 21 by indigenous or ethnic communities. There are numerous cases from the Inter-American Court of Human Rights addressing this issue. I would like to take the time today to go through some of these cases because they're critical to an understanding of the concept of the right to property under international law. And they are now having significance outside of the inter-American system. Cases include Mayagna, Awastingi Community versus Nicaragua, Moiwana Village versus Suriname, Yaqui Aksa Indigenous Community versus Paraguay, Saramanca People versus Suriname, and Sai Hoxi Hoyamaxa Indigenous Community versus Paraguay. Their significance rests in the way the right to property is acquired how it is understood in the context of indigenous peoples, and the significance of the property to community identity. Let's turn first to the Mayagana case. The International, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights found that Nicaragua violated Article 21 by denying the Awas Tigni community, quote, the use and enjoyment of their property, end quote when the state granted logging concessions to third parties to use, quote, property and resources located in an area which could correspond fully or in part to the lands which must be delimited, delimited, 
demarcated and titled, end quote. The Ewastingi community lacked title to the land, yet they had inhabited this land. This land was rich in natural resources. Their possession of the land, according to the court, was sufficient for the official recognition of the property right. Community members were held to, quote, have a communal property to the lands they currently inhabit without detriment to the rights of other indigenous communities, end quote. The court did not resolve the competing claims in this case. Instead, it started down a path that it would repeat in other cases. It ordered the state to, to conduct delimitation, demarcation, and titling of the territory. And until that was completed, the state and any party acting with, quote, its acquiescence or its tolerance, end quote, could not impair the property located in the relevant geographic area. It's interesting that the judgment focused on the power of the state, the state's authority to organize public power to ensure the enjoyment of human rights by the persons under the jurisdiction of the state. In the Moiwana Village versus Suriname case, an ethnic community claimed a right to property even though its members or the community itself lacked title to the land. They had been forced off the land in a violent way. Suriname was held to a violated Article 21 as to the Moiwana members because they had once inhabited the lands with neighboring communities respecting their possession of the land. As in the Mayagana case, the court ordered delimitation, demarcation, and titling of the land to be done in cooperation with neighboring villages and communities. Suriname was ordered not to act, quote, to affect the existence, value, use, or enjoyment of the property located in the geographical area where the Moiwana community members had traditionally lived, end quote. In this case, there was also an order of reparations. Suriname was ordered to pay reparations both on an individual basis to community members and into a development fund, as well as to pay moral damages. It's interesting, in both of these cases, the court found a violation of the property rights of the respective community and ordered the state to work with the community and other interested parties in establishing title to the lands. So we see the right to property as existing based on the presence of a community on the lands. And then the benefit of that is not only just access to the land itself, but the state being ordered to take measures to protect that access by way of an official titling of the property. A more expansive view of communal property rights was, was discussed by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in the Yaqui Aksa Indigenous Community case against Paraguay. This dealt with an issue of 
potential conflict between private property owners and indigenous community members. At stake were the latter's ancestral rights, considered essential to the community's cultural identity and, quote, economic survival, end quote. At this point, I'd like to step back and think about those two phrases. This notion of property as being linked to ancestral rights, critical to the identity of these communities. Is this an economic right or is this a political right? Secondly, though, the court's saying it's essential to their economic survival. Economic survival in terms of perhaps access uh, to resources. Or is it economic survival in the sense of their own identity without having the ability to live as a community in this specific area? Perhaps their survival would be jeopardized. When, according to the court, there is a potential conflict, uh, restrictions on property rights need to be drawn. They will be permissible. But consistent with some of the jurisprudence we've seen out of the European Court of Human Rights, there must be a law to draw these lines. The lines must be necessary, and they must be uh, proportionate. And there must be some connection between the line drawing and the legitimate aims of a democratic society. The court elaborated on this test and noted that the restrictions on property should be aimed at, quote, satisfying an imperative, emphasize imperative public interest, rather than merely having a useful or timely purpose, end quote. As for proportionality, the restriction must be, quote, closely adjusted to the attainment of a legitimate objective, interfering as little as possible with the attainment of, um, or as little as possible with the effective exercise of the restricted right. And the restrictions must be justified by collective objectives important ones that, quote, clearly prevail over the necessity of full enjoyment of the restricted right. Applying this fairly broad standard uh, between a potential clash of private property rights holders and claims of ancestral um, uh, property by an indigenous community, the court recognized that a private individual's right to property can be rest restricted to attain the collective objective of preserving cultural identities in a democratic and pluralistic society, and that the restriction, quote, could be proportional if fair compensation is paid to those effective. Now, this judgment is critical because it easily could have resulted in a decision in which community property rights trump private individual property rights. Yet, a state can't, according to the court, quote, adopt measures to return the traditional territory and communal resources to indigenous populations. Um, if it can't do that, it should compensate the community, quote, guided primarily by the meaning of the land for them, end quote. 
two factors came into play in the Yaki Aksa case. First, Article 29 of the American Convention on Human Rights and the unique status of indigenous communities. Under Article 29, in interpreting Article 21, the court must give effect to conventions and other legal obligations of the state. In this instance, Paraguay is a signatory to the International Labor Organization Convention Number 169 concerning indigenous and tribal peoples in independent countries. ILO Convention Number 169 links the rights of indigenous peoples to economic, social, and cultural rights particularly as to their relationship to the land. Also, Paraguay has given domestic effect to the ILO Convention Number 169. Paraguay's constitution recognizes indigenous peoples and sets forth specific rights. So the ability of the court to draw on the ILO Convention to give effect to the right to property in the context of indigenous peoples I think is absolutely critical. The court is reaching out beyond the context of the language in the treaty itself, looking at international norms, particularly those adopted by Paraguay, to give effect to the meaning of the right to property. An even broader reading of the Article 21 right to property is in the Saramaca people's case, in which the Saramaca people challenge Suriname's claim of ownership of territory inhabited and used by the people, and Suriname's award of logging and mining concessions on the same territory. Suriname claimed that as owner of the territory, it could allow the Saramaka people and other access to and use of the natural resources. Suriname, of course, is thinking in the context of sovereignty. This is the essence of being a state, as I said earlier. The Saramaka people, however, claimed that their survival depended on access to and use of the territory that they had traditionally used and occupied, including access to all the natural resources within the territory that the people have traditionally used. Suriname was not a party to the ILO Convention. It had not enacted domestic laws to protect indigenous communities. Yet drawing on the earlier cases involving indigenous peoples, the court held that a tribal community, like an indigenous one, depends on control and use of natural resources to maintain, quote, their very way of life, end quote. In a sense, their physical survival, their cultural survival is at stake. It held that the natural resources within the territory that the tribe traditionally used and needed for it to survive, develop, and continue are protected under international uh, law, specifically Article 21 of the Convention. Now, what are these natural resources? The court seemed to struggle with this. Um, extraction of a mineral that the tribe had not used gold, for example. Is that a natural resource that is essential to the community? Well, if in extracting gold, harm is done to other subsistence resources, such as water 
or trees, then the community could be affected. Arguably then, all natural resources within the territory were protected under the people's right to property. And again, however, this right is not going to be absolute. The court crafted important safeguards, the need for a balance, the people's right against the state's interests. How did it go about this balance in, in the Saramaka people's case? First, any development, investment, exploration, or extraction must have a plan, and this plan must involve the effective participation of the Saramaka people. I think this is critical, a realization that the community be engaged in understanding how resources are to be allocated. Of course, not without controversy. How do you determine who the leaders of the community are to participate in the plan? It's one point. The plan must provide a reasonable benefit to the people, and no concession will be issued absent a prior environmental and social impact assessment being performed by independent and technically capable entities with the state supervision. Clearly, the challenges are going to be in the details, yet in outlining a broad approach, recognition of the property right of the com community was established. It imposes certain safeguards. It will allow the people to shape their right to property. In this instance, the safeguards had not been in place, particularly as to concessions that the state had entered into. Hence, Suriname was held to have breached the Saramaka people's right to property, um, even as to certain concessions awarded to Saramaka members. In addition to awarding damages, which were be, to be included in a development fund, the court ordered delimitation, demarcation, and granting of title to the people's territory without prejudice to other tribal and indigenous communities. Activities under existing concession agreements were put on hold absent the people's consent. The final case I'd like to talk about in the context of the inter-American jurisprudence is the Sahoyamaxa case. In this instance, an indigenous community claimed the right to ancestral lands that other title owners had held for a number of years. The court advised Paraguay to apply the balancing test it had set out before in the Yaqueaxa case to resolve the competing claims. An interesting twist was Paraguay's argument that requiring it to return land to the indigenous community would interfere with obligations Paraguay had under a bilateral investment treaty with Germany. That bilateral investment treaty protected investors from Ger Germany, protected it, those investors from state expropriation. Now, it's interesting that the argument wasn't fully developed in, in this case, uh, but it did catch the attention of, of the court. Uh, the court stressed that the bilateral investment treaty obligations need to be harmonized with the American Convention human rights obligations. The American Convention is a multilateral treaty on human rights. According to the court, it stands in a class of its own. It generates, 
rights for individuals. It doesn't depend on re reciprocity among states. The court cleverly figured out a way to harmonize any potential, potential conflict. According to the court, uh, the bilateral investment treaty, quote, permitted expropriation in the public interest, presumably upon payment of compensation. And this could, could justify land restitution to indigenous people, end quote. Let's shift to another treaty, the African Charter on Human and People's Rights. Article 14 of that treaty guarantees the right to property and, quote, it may only be encroached upon in the interest of public need or in the general interest of the community and in accordance with the provision of appropriate laws, end quote. In May of 2017, the African Court on Human and People's Rights recognized the right to property as being applied to individuals, groups, or communities. In giving effect to the treaty, right to property, in the context of Kenya's eviction of the Ogia community and other settlers from the Mao Forest, the court relied on Article 26 of the United Nations General Assembly Declaration 61-295 on the rights of indigenous peoples which was adopted by the General Assembly on September 13, 2007. The Declaration acknowledged the right of indigenous peoples to their lands and resources, including development of them. This Declaration, as characterized by the African Court, is consistent with the analysis that I just went through in the context of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. The Court found that the expulsion of the Ogiet people on the grounds that the public interest was preservation of a natural ecosystem violated Article 14 of the African Charter. The rationale by the state to evict the people was not established according to the court. And even if it had, even if the state had a legitimate interest in establishing an ecosystem, the wholesale expulsion of a people, according to the court, was not necessary or proportionate to meet the end. We are seeing within regional systems a fairly sophisticated approach to the right to property. The right is defined broadly. There's recognition of the state to act at times, to limit the right, and it's up to the courts to strike the appropriate balance. In the case of indigenous peoples, we are seeing an understanding of property that expands well beyond the notion of mere access to resources. We are talking about identity. We are talking about a political issues. We are seeing courts relying on international standards to give effect to the full meaning of the right. The right to property cannot be fully understood under international law without understanding another type of treaty, the International Investment Agreement. As many of you know, this treaty protects investors from one state party to the treaty who invest in another state party to the treaty. There are a large number of international investment agreements in the thousands 
with many of them providing for arbitration of an investor's claim against a host state for violation of a protection measure set out in the treaty. These measures include, in many instances, the requirement that the investment be given national treatment or most favored nation treatment, a requirement of a minimum standard of treatment, or sometimes referred to as fair and equitable treatment, a prohibition of expropriation absent compensation. There are other aspects sometimes set out in the investment protection measures. Each treaty stands on its own. The international investment treaties, bilateral investment treaties, free trade agreements, and, and, and the like, may include a dispute settlement mechanism, what is referred to as the investor's state settlement dispute system. This mechanism, which calls for arbitration of the investor's claim against the host state for violating one of the protection measures, this mechanism has come under attack in recent years. The concern is that the mechanism is designed to protect the investor, the property holder, without regard to the other side of the equation, the public interest. Yet, just as in the context of the right to property in human rights treaties, there are no absolutes, even in the international investment agreements. You have to read the agreements carefully to see the limits on the right to property, or particularly what is referred to as, as the investment protection uh, measures. Many of the treaties define investment broadly, just like the human rights courts have done. Many of them are to be construed under international law, which may allow a tribunal to use the Vienna Convention on International Law of Treaties to give effect to the entirety of the treaty. In reviewing the treaties, particularly recent ones, there's language in them about the need to protect the environment, about the need to maintain labor standards, about other public interest objectives, concerns about how such a treaty would affect existing legal regime so that implementation of the treaty would not infringe on the ability of the state to regulate in certain areas. Tribunals adjudicating disputes under the international investment agreements, I argue, are given tools, just like the human rights courts, to engage in an assessment of the right to property in light of other societal objectives. Now, the tribunals have to be mindful of the treaty language, but they also have to be mindful of international law. Whether this balance is being done by a court in the public context or by an arbitral tribunal, at this point, that is another issue. And I understand it's, it's high, highly contested. But the type of issues that are being raised in the investor state context are remarkably similar to those in the human rights context. My final words involve the future. We're seeing property rights being adjudicated in municipal courts, international courts, international arbitral tribunals. Many worry that this phenomenon will lead to inconsistent decisions unclear standards 
and the like. I see it as an opportunity for the lawyer, particularly one versed in international law, it means that expertise and an understanding of the wide range of treaties and the relationship of customary principles to the treaties is critical. The lawyer must have the ability to draw into the concept of the right to property, economic, political, and social aspects as well. This is a major challenge. However, I believe it's one that is essential for the appropriate ordering of rights in a world of limited resources. Thank you.